1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History
0: Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So last fall, I took a trip to Dover, New Hampshire. And this was mostly just to be a little personal adventure that sounded like something fun to do and a chance to look at some really amazing autumn leaves. But one of the things that led me to pick Dover specifically for my adventure was the Woodman Institute Museum. So this museum opened in 1916, and it's mostly dedicated to local and natural history, although it has other exhibits as well. One of the town's original garrisons is there, Uh, That building was built in 1675 and then moved to the Woodman Institute property later after it was donated to the museum. It's actually pretty cool because there is an entire structure built around the garrison to protect it from the elements because it's so old. There's a lot of really fascinating stuff in the Woodman Institute Museum. Natural history and taxidermy displays are really arranged and curated a lot like they were when the museum originally opened. But one of the things that really caught my eye was inside the garrison, which is full of colonial era artifacts. And on the wall was a map that traced the progression of a conflict between British colonists and the Native Americans from the area. And the docent told me the basic story of what had happened. And the part that made me think this needs to be an episode hinged on a sham battle. So today, sham basically means trick or hoax. Um, But at the time, and maybe also regionally, I'm not quite sure, uh, the term sham battle was used to describe a lot of different mock battles. So reenactments were sham battles, or uh, battles that were done as part of a ritual were sham battles. So it wasn't necessarily meant to be deceptive. In this case, however, it was from a couple of different angles. So that is what we are going to talk about today. Uh, This sham led to what came to be known as the Cohico Massacre, or the Raid on Dover.
1: The Raid on Dover took place during one of the many times in history which Britain has been at war with France. In this case, wars were happening both in North America and in Europe concurrently, with each of the wars having a different name depending on exactly when it happened and which side the historian was on. Specifically, these were the French and Indian Wars, which in North America... Uh, were between Britain and its Native American allies on one side, and France and its Native American allies on the other.
0: So each of the French and Indian Wars ran alongside a related conflict that was happening in Europe. And we could easily spend an entire episode outlining all of the various nuances of who was at war with whom and why. If you look at... Uh, timelines of all of this, different historians group them together differently and define them differently, and different nations give them different names. So for the sake of simplicity, France and England were at war with one another off and on for almost a hundred years, with part of the conflict focused on their territories in North America and who should control those territories. So it was part of, like, the greater history of Britain being at war with France. Uh, And this part had a specifically uh, American component to it, and as far as where the theater of the war was happening.
1: And today's subject kind of took place in a time that it overlapped a bit with King William's War, which ran from 1689 to 1697. And it was the first of the French and Indian Wars, and in the European theater, it was the War of the Grand Alliance, or the War of the League of Augsburg, along with other names that it's sometimes called. Uh, King William's War was named after King William III, also known as William of Orange, who ruled Britain and other places at the time.
0: I know this may sound like a soup of many different wars, and one of the things I, I am tolly as I was working on this, was that I find uh, the progression of all of these battles on each side of the Atlantic Ocean to be very confusing.
1: <laughs> it is, <laughs> because there it are. is battle soup. It really becomes that way when you try to sort it all out.
0: Yeah, so... During King William's War, battles ranged all over what's now Nova Scotia, New Hampshire, Maine, and New York. The colonies of New Hampshire and New York already existed this, at this point, but Maine was founded much later. And at the time, Nova Scotia was Acadia. And yes, we have heard your many requests for an episode on the expulsion of the Acadians. We will do that at some point. Uh, I'm not sure when, but lots of people ask for that. Uh The French also tried and failed to conquer Boston during King William's War.
1: Uh But before we get into this particular event in King William's War, we're going to have to talk a little bit about where it happened. And before we jump into that, uh it's a little early, but let's go ahead and do a sponsor break now so that we can keep some continuity later. entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So to get back to the setting of where this event
0: happened... Dover, New Hampshire, was founded in 1623 on the Kohiko River. The colonists in Dover, overall, maintained generally good relationships with the Native American tribes in the area, which were primarily the Penacook.
1: And as was common with many tribes in the area, the Penacook tended to move from place to place seasonally, depending on where food was most available. And although they hunted, gathered, and fished, they did also cultivate corn, and they taught these skills to the colonists in and around Dover while trading with the colonists for tools and supplies.
0: There were, of course, sometimes disputes. And to be quite clear, nearly half of the Pinnacook had died of disease after the arrival of Europeans and the Americans. But in general, at this point in history, the Penacook tried to maintain positive diplomatic relations with their neighbors uh, from Europe, while also defending themselves from the Mohawk, which had been their enemies for quite a long time. Penacook Chief Passaconaway formed a confederation among other neighboring tribes to this end of having positive relations with the colonists from Europe, as well as defending themselves from the Mohawk. His son, Juana Lancet, also maintained this confederation and the ties to the colony at Dover after he... Uh, succeeded his father as becoming the chief.
1: The first industry in Dover came via a sawmill, which was founded by Richard Waldron in 1642. And depending on what records you're looking at, you're going to see different spellings. Sometimes it comes up as Waldern, D-E-R-N-E, or Waldrin, uh, D-R-Y-N-E, in the various records. But by 1664, more than 40 families had settled near the sawmill. Today, that's actually downtown Dover. But at this point, people called it Kohiko after the sawmill. Waldron himself was put in command of the militia and given the rank of major.
0: The colonists in the Dover area also constructed garrisons that could be used for both defense of the town and to shelter people in case there was an attack. So families would gather up their food and their bedding, and they would go to the garrison, which could be defended thanks to being constructed out of immensely thick logs. I mean, they are enormous. Having stood in one of these things, they are almost incomprehensibly huge logs. Uh, And there would be little slits in them for firearms to be able to shoot through. And the protection of the garrison was not just for the European colonists. Native peoples in the area also frequently asked for and were granted shelter in the garrisons for
1: the night. The population in this area really increased significantly in 1676, when Native Americans from Massachusetts fled to Dover and other settlements in the wake of King Philip's War. So, in spite of the
0: similarity in the name to King William's War, King King Philip's War was not one of the French and Indian Wars. In the early 1600s, colonists in what's now Massachusetts had gradually become independent from needing Native American help for their own survival. And as the colonists began moving farther and farther into territory that Native peoples were already living on, the tribes started to resist this encroachment. Relationships between
1: the Native peoples and the colonists in the area uh, pretty quickly soured. Metacom, also known as King Philip, had become the leader of the Wampanoags after the death of his father. And in 1675, Metacom led most of the Native American tribes in the area in an uprising against the British. It went on for more than a year. The Native peoples were generally holding their own in these battles, or even winning, until the spring of 1676 when they faced starvation due to the destruction of their crops. The uprising also lost its leader when Medicom was beheaded. King Philip's War ended not long after. This was an extremely bloody, extremely destructive
0: war, especially considering the population of the area at the time. It wound up killing almost 3,000 of the native people and 600 Europeans, and it destroyed settlements all over the New England frontier. The area around Dover had been less affected, largely because the Pinnacook had retreated to more remote areas to try to avoid the fighting.
1: And in the wake of King Philip's War, Native American refugees fled both north and west. About 400 wound up at the Cohico settlement at Dover. So that's where we get to the
0: sham battle that led me to want to do this episode. It's 1676, so King William's War has not started yet. That's going to play a part in the next chapter of this. Uh, The area around Dover, New Hampshire, at this point, is home to a, a sawmill, some garrisons, fewer than 50 families of colonists from Europe, its own local Native American population, and also about 400 Native American refugees who had fled the terror and destruction of King Philip's War. And we will go on to talk about how this turned into a problem after another brief word from a sponsor.
1: entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so because the Native American refugees in Dover had fled from around Boston... Boston actually sent two companies of soldiers to capture them and bring them back by force.
0: Now, Major Waldron thought it might be possible to make this problem go away without bloodshed. He did think that the Boston area Native Americans should be returned back to Boston, but he didn't want the Native peoples from around Dover to be harmed. I mean, after all, especially from the colonists' point of view, relationships with the Pinnacook had been pretty good. They didn't really want to mess that up. There was a productive trade relationship going on, there was cooperation between the peoples, and not, overall, a lot of fighting at
1: that point. So, he proposed that they have a sham battle. He would arm the Native Americans with muskets, and they would have a mock fight against the Dover militia to make a good show for the Boston troops. The Boston troops would see this battle, be satisfied that things were being taken care of, and go back home. Uh, Waldron reportedly armed them, although with only enough for the armed men to fire one single shot and not reload. So the part about putting on a good show for the Boston
0: troops and making them go away seems to have been how he sold the refugees on this whole plan. But here's what he did not tell them. He had actually arranged for the Dover area militia to be present. And once the native uh, fighters had all fired their one shot from their muskets, Surround them and weed out the ones who were from Dover from the ones who were from Boston and then send the Boston group back with the Massachusetts soldiers.
1: The Massachusetts soldiers took more than 200 Native Americans back to Boston, where some of them were executed and others were sold into slavery. So
0: this whole sham battle had done what it was supposed to do from Waldern's point of view. It It had gotten... The Boston area native population back to Boston, and it had left the Dover native population unharmed. However, unsurprisingly, this was not good for the relationship between the Dover colonists and the Native Americans from the area. Those productive trading relationships and diplomatic ties quickly started to crumble. Things remained tense for more than a decade, during which Dover added to its collection of garrisons, and the newer garrisons had a second floor that was larger than the first floor, which created an overhang that could be used to pour hot oil on people who were trying to set the structure on fire or break their way into it.
1: Each neighborhood had its own garrison, and five houses, those that were at the highest vantage points around Dover, were converted into garrisons at public expense and surrounded by a palisade. Some accounts actually say there were a total of six heavily fortified garrisons. So there's a little bit of lack of clarity around those specifics. So
0: Major Waldron, possibly in an effort to try to keep things under control, also started putting a number of restrictions on the native people around Dover. He started restricting their like their rights to travel in the woods, and he started, quote, trading with them for land, that these trades always happened under duress, and they always worked strongly in the colonists' favor. So, things were going south pretty quickly.
1: Eventually, Chief Wannalancet died, and he was succeeded by Concomagus. While Wannalancet had followed his father's example in maintaining cooperative relationships with the Dover colonists, Concomagus had no intention of doing any such thing. While his father and his grandfather had tried to maintain these diplomatic ties with colonists, He had seen one injustice after another following in the wake of the sham battle.
0: Also running concurrently with all of this escalation was, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, King William's War. So things were becoming increasingly tense all over the area. Small scale attacks against colonial homes and settlements were happening all over New England. And it was clear to the colonists at Dover that more serious hostility was imminent. People started taking refuge in the garrisons
1: every single night. Governor Edward Cranfield decided to enlist the aid of the Mohawk, who, remember, had long been enemies of the penacook for support. So Concomagus at first, moved as many of his people as he could into a more remote area to try to keep them safe. And he sent a series of letters to Governor Cranfield to try to reach some kind of agreement.
0: The governor apparently didn't enter into serious negotiations with Concomagus at any point, so Concomagus eventually started planning a more coordinated attack against the colonists in Dover.
1: Although Major Waldron insisted that everyone's fears were overblown, some of the Pentacook who were loyal to the colonists tried to warn them that there was an incoming attack. Word made it to the governor, who wrote to Waldron, warning him of a large gathering of Native Americans in the area who seemed to have hostile intentions. He sent this letter on the 27th of June, 1689. Unfortunately,
0: that same night before the uh, letter reached its destination, two or three Native American women asked for shelter at the garrisons around Dover and were allowed in at all but one of them. While everyone was asleep, these women unbarred the doors and opened the gates so that the uh, warriors who were waiting outside could come
1: in. At Major Waldron's garrison, the Major himself was tied to a chair and slashed with his own sword, with his attacker reportedly saying, quote, I cross out my account. He was dismembered and killed, and his family was killed or taken captive before his house was burned down. Similar scenes played
0: out at Dover's other garrisons as the colonists within were killed and captured before the garrison itself was set on fire. Some of the garrisons were ultimately left standing, but their contents were looted and their inhabitants killed or captured before the raiders moved on.
1: The only garrison that was left untouched was one where a barking dog had alerted the family who were there. Most of them were actually away, uh, and someone who was there had woken up, closed the gate, and mounted a defense.
0: 23 people were killed and 29 were taken captive. And this was about a quarter of Dover's population. Some of the captives were reportedly also sold into slavery, as had happened after the sham
1: battle. Concomagus and the Pentecook retreated quickly before the militia could be raised or before any kind of real resistance could be mounted. And, uh, Concomagus eventually relocated the Penacook and then joined his people with the Abenaki people, which was a closely related tribe that was native to the area. Many
0: of Concomagus's family was killed or captured in a raid later on by Captain Benjamin Church that took place in 1690. He and the Penacook continued to attack other settlements in the area after the raid on Cahico, and this stopped only when he learned that the British were holding his uh, his surviving family members hostage.
1: Because such a large proportion of the population of Dover had been lost, it took quite a while for the town to recover. It continued to be the target of similar attacks and raids, but there was never anything on the scale of this massacre.
0: When you look into information about the Penacook and the Abenaki today, a lot of times they're written about as one tribe or as like different uh, parts of the same tribe or the same people. So um, there are still members of those tribes who are alive today. They're not A group that has disappeared. So that is what I learned when I delved more deeply into something that I had heard the very brief um, museum docent version of uh, while on a weekend trip.
1: Museums are uh, very inspiring places.
0: They are! I tend, even when I am deliberately like, okay, I am on vacation and I am not going to think about the podcast because we like to work on the podcast, but it is still our jobs. It is work. And we sometimes we need a break from work. Um, So even when I am conscientiously like, I am at this museum for myself and my own edification, I still wind up writing down things to do episodes about (laughs) later on.
1: Me too. Do you, however, at the moment, have some listener mail?
0: I do! And... This is another that is about our episode about uh, the history of special education in the United States. Um, and it is from Amy. And she starts by gushing a bit. And I'm just going to skip that part. And she says, while I have probably 50 favorite episodes, it is the most recent podcast you did on the special education movement that finally got me to email you. My father taught special education for 37 years, starting in the early 1970s, so he lived all of this history. It's amazing how times have changed. When he first started teaching, his students were completely self-contained, and their room was in the farthest part of the school, away from all the other students, and next to the boiler room. By the time he retired, schools started doing co-teaching, where he would go with his students to their core classes, where they would be included with the, quote, regular students, and he would offer support. It's amazing how times have changed. The podcast really hit home for another reason. My daughter was born this past June and was diagnosed at birth with Down syndrome. As a teacher, I'm fortunate enough to know about legislation and what her legal rights are to an education and know the system and how to get it, how to get the best for my daughter. I ache for parents who don't know how the system works. Your podcast really shows how the lives of so many children have been changed for the better. I'm lucky my sweet girl was born in 2014 and that we're able to get her the various therapies at three months old. I'm lucky to live in a country that provides resources and opportunities to children like her. The day she was born, we had no idea she had Down syndrome. All I could think about was what a limited life she was going to have and that she would be bullied. However, I now realize how amazing she is and how there are college programs all over the country for people like her. Her life has already inspired me to follow my own dreams as I want to be an example for her. I have always wanted to write and publish books. I've started writing a series of children's books in which the main character is a girl with special needs. There are no books out there for these children that really celebrate them. The books don't focus on limitations. They show amazing, funny, brave individual kids who happen to have differences. I'd like to have it eventually published and start a company that has books, dolls, and a magazine. I know this ended up being a really long message. Thank you so much for teaching me about things I've never he- heard of and for having such an awesome podcast. Sincerely, Amy. And then she suggests some future things. Um, one of the reasons that I wanted to read this letter is that I almost wonder if Amy's, uh, if Amy's father taught special education at one of the elementary schools that I went to, because literally that is exactly the situation. The special education classroom was literally in the basement, separated completely from all the other children. Um, and I didn't really talk about it in that episode, but I vividly remember going through school. I started uh, public school in 1980, so it was not long at all after the passage of all this legislation. Um, and there was still debate going on for a, at least a decade, probably more about the idea of, quote, mainstreaming, which is putting children who had special needs into a, a classroom for, quote, regular students and, um, And now that seems to be, I'm sure there are definitely school systems where this is not so much the case, but that seems to be more like the goal and not some giant uh, controversy for people to talk about, about whether children should be mainstreamed. The answer seems to be yes, if it is possible. (laughs) Children should be in a classroom with peers of all ability types. So it's great to hear from folks who have first person perspective on all of that. If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Mist History and on Twitter at Mist History. Our Tumblr is Mist and we are on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash Mist in History. We have a Spreadshirt store where you can buy t-shirts and whatnot and that is at Mist You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com and look up information about anything you want, basically. All kinds of stuff. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find uh, show notes of the episodes that Holly and I have done with all of our resources that we used. You can find an archive of every single episode we have ever done, and you can find lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: work. Zumo Play.